we're looking at the seven big questions that, that the world asks about faith and Christianity. Um, this is the launch, really, towards a discussion group, an exploratory discussion group that's going to meet over at Certino's, unless they outgrow that, um, for about seven weeks more to discuss these things. So if you have someone in your life, or maybe you're one of those people that needs and re- desires to have more processing, more discussion, we highly encourage it to the, to the point where we've provided this as a new ministry. So it is a sermon series now, a new ministry next, and it is an incredible website for quite a few years now. There is a website called exploregod.com, and it gives both in writing as well as in audio as well as in video various answers to this from a biblical perspective. Solid, solid website, solid ministry. Today, we're probably answering the most important question of all seven, and that is, is Jesus really God? Years ago, I came to Beaumont, uh, end of 07, and my wife and I pulled up to the corner of, of Dallin and Delaware, right? Over there where the HEB is, and I see a man that looked just like Jesus. And as a matter of fact, I tapped Wendy on the shoulder. I said, look, it's Jesus. And it was a guy with the hair, and he happened to be rolling, maybe you saw him, happened to be rolling a large red cross, all right? I mean, when I say large, like nine foot tall, you know, four by four, six by six beam, and he painted it red. He was cheating. He had wheels on the bottom of the thing. And maybe you've seen people go down the road like that, just walking down a road, bearing a cross. Don't know exactly all that they think that stands for. But it reminded me just how much Jesus turns heads. He's still today turns heads. Last week I was in, actually two weeks ago, I was in a discipleship group with some guys I'm mentoring and one of them said the name Jesus. We were at Rayo's. They said Jesus and I counted no less than four heads went, right? The name Jesus still turns heads. Jesus was a man who captured attention during his day 2,000 years ago. People just could not stop talking about him. He was and he is today the topic of much conversation. There's been more books written about Jesus Christ than any other figure in history. There's been more music written that was inspired by Jesus than any other subject in history. There's more institutions, more hospitals, more schools started in the name of Jesus than any other name. There has been more churches and missionaries that have been launched and sent into the world because of Jesus than any other person. Jesus is still turning heads today. Now, when Jesus walked the, world, walked the earth, there was a lot of disagreement as to who he was. So much so that he goes to Caesarea Philippi, the far northern part of Jerusalem, at a, a pantheon temple scene with, um, carved in the side of, of one of the mountains there. He sits there with this pantheon of all these nooks with all these little idols behind him, and he says, who do men say that I am? And of course, his disciples had answers for that. He said, well, some say you're... You're a a mystic. Uh, Some say you're a stern preacher like John the Baptist. Some say you're a a compassionate prophet like Jeremiah. Some say you're just one of the new prophets coming on the scene. And Jesus looks at him and says, but who do you say that I am? Today, if you were asked that question, who is Jesus, right? You will get tons of answers. He was a prophet. He's a religious man. He's a moral teacher, a spiritual guru, he's the Messiah, he's 
I heard this recently. He's a traitor to the Jewish faith. The answers are all over the map, but the question we're dealing with today is a sliver of that question, and it is, is he really God? He's more than a man. I want you to open up to John chapter 10, as the book of John teaches us that he was more than a man. John chapter 10, as you find this in your Bible, let me give you a little background. This is towards the end of his ministry. The event is taking place in the last few weeks of Jesus' life. He's in the temple in Jerusalem and he heals a blind man. Now the religious leaders of the day find this newly healed blind man and say, what happened? It's the Sabbath, what happened? And the blind man just points to Jesus. When the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, heard that, they became furious. You can see the irony of the Sabbath being a day of rest. And Jesus comes to this man and gives him rest from his blindness on the Sabbath, which was the symbolic picture of what the Sabbath would bring. It's the day of Jesus' rest. And he heals a blind man. And the Pharisees are like, you broke, you broke religious law. You, you are way out of bounds. And there's a confrontation ensuing between Jesus and the religious leaders. It didn't begin there. It had been brewing for many years. But, but I, I want to put this in context. They say that good Bible study, good interpretation of Scripture has three steps. You know what those are? Context, context, context. So there's the initial context. Let's get the larger context. Obviously, chapter 10 comes after nine other chapters. But the whole book of John has a purpose statement. I love when Bible books give us the purpose of their writing. Uh, throw it on the board here. John uh, gives us this as his purpose statement. Therefore, many other signs. Signs here, Simeon has the idea of a miracle done for a purpose. He did many different miracles, but there's many others that he did. But these are the ones that I wrote down, John says. I chose these miracles, seven major ones in particular. Many others were done in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John. But these have been written so that you may believe. So he, John is, no apologies here, John is wanting you to believe. John is trying to convince you of something. Let's see what he's trying to convince us of. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now this isn't a word we use except in some cussing, right? Uh, Christ is the, it comes from the word that means oiled one. It's the Greek word for oil smearing. If you've ever smeared oil on a plan, that pan, that white stuff, they call that Crisco, coming from this same Greek word, Christos. It means oiled one. In their traditions of the Jewish life and other cultures as well, this olive oil and these other kinds of oils, they would use it to ceremonially choose priests and kings and prophets. Um, but when it came to the language of religion, it began to be used as a word for the one who was chosen to come and deliver the people. Now, the nation Israel thought it was a political deliverance, a physical deliverance, and Jesus came first, not, not to deliver physically. He comes again second time to deliver the planet physically, but he comes first to deliver us from the larger enemy, that of spiritual deliverance from Satan himself and from sin and from death. And so Paul, John here says, I have written these ones down. I have chosen these ones because in his mind, they are the best ones to prove that he is the chosen one, the oiled one, the one who is the Messiah. Hebrew, Mashiach, Christos is a, is a synonym for that word, Messiah. He is the Messiah. But look what comes next. They didn't have a problem. A lot of people called themselves Messiah during this age. It's the next part that got Jesus in trouble. 
that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, a lot of young believers struggle with this language of Son of God. Um, but what in, he, in a Hebrew's mind, the language of sonship is that of nature. That he is son as to the nature of the father. He is of the same substance as the father. So to say Jesus is the son of God is to say that Jesus is God. So John is writing with no apologies to get you to believe and convince you that Jesus is God. And he's the chosen one. Now, why is that important? Why do we need to spend a whole message today on that? Because of the next part. What's at stake is the last part. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. To get this wrong, heaven and hell are in the balance. To get this wrong is for you a life and death situation. You gotta get this right. All right, so how would you do it? How would you prove that someone is God? All right, well, you would... Go to things that only God can do. You would go to sayings that only God would say. You would talk about attributes, right? You would talk about names. And that's what John does. He does a lot of that. So he, let, me, let me start with this idea of seven signs. He gives a, a miracle, a sign, and then he gives a saying. He has a, a miracle and then a message. And this is how it works through the book of John. Jesus will say, I am, I am the light of the world. Right? Something only God could say. And then he heals a blind man to prove it. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the one that everybody needs. In order to prove that, he feeds upwards of 20,000 people in one sitting with just a couple of things of bread and fish. And then for an encore, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I've come to give you life. Well, I am the source of all life. How do you prove that? He takes a man who's been dead four days and he brings him out of the grave. His name was Lazarus. And then again, another encore to that, him himself. He himself lays down his life under his own authority and picks it back up under his own authority. No, he, he proves in sayings and signs who he is. All right, so this is where this book starts. But in those nine chapters, let me get you up to par. Here's the ABCs of the book. You might write these down. These are great. Here's what John is saying. First, he starts in chapter one with the affirmations about Christ. These are things that have been affirmed for millennium. Things like he's the word became flesh, dwelt among us, light of the world, son of God, lamb of God, Messiah, king of Israel, son of man. All that is in chapter one. These are the affirmations about Christ. John tells you who he is. John the Baptist tells you who he is. The father speaks from heaven. The spirit descends in chapter one. The early disciples claim that this is who he is. That's the A. The B and chapter 2 stands for the basis of his divinity. What is his divinity based on? Well, if you're going to have Godhood as your resume, you better be able to create. Both in a Jewish and a non-Jewish mind in that time, that's where divinity began. You better have point one on your resume. I can take nothing and turn it into something. And so he goes to a party. Jesus turns water into wine. He takes what is not there and he makes it there. His divine, how would you prove it? Creation. He goes to the temple after that and he says, see this temple? It's mine. It's my father's house. That's chapter two. Chapter three and four are about the converts he saves. In chapter three, he goes to Nicodemus, a high moral Jewish man. He's clueless to salvation and he brings Nicodemus to the place of his need. In chapter four, it's kind of the opposite polarity. He goes to a low moral heretical woman 
a woman at a well, clueless also to salvation, and he treats her differently. But he brings her to the place of her need. At the end of chapter four, there's a Galilean official, or in the middle of this, a Galilean official who has a dying son, and he's clueless to salvation. And this Galilean with his dying son has been brought to the place of salvation, the place of his need. And this is how God converts. He converts through crisis. He converts through crushing. He converts through bringing you to the place where you don't realize God is all you need till God is all you have. And if that's where you're at today, maybe today is a place where you can learn something about his salvation because your ears are open through the trial of your life. In chapter 5, division begins in John chapter 5. Persecution begins. Jesus does something almost tongue-in-cheek here with the way that it works. He takes a man who has been uh, lame for 38 years, which is how long the Israelites were in the wilderness. 48, 38 years they were wandering in the wilderness, and he heals them on the Sabbath by a word. And the Jews, because they did that, the Jews understood, and they want to kill him. And at that point, in John chapter 5, the death shadow begins to fall on Jesus because he spoke to a bunch of religious up, uh, yuppies, people. He spoke to them about their lack of true religion, about their, about their shoddy shanty of self-righteousness. And when you point out the shoddy shanty of someone's self-righteousness, that makes them mad. All right, that's chapter 5. Now, at that point, in chapter 6, he is the engagement of the 12. He sends his 12 out. And he sends them for spiritual work with spiritual blessing, not physical blessing, all right? Spiritual bread. We want blessing. We just don't want the spiritual blessing. God, we want what you don't offer, and you offer what we don't want. I want strokes. You provide salvation. I want perks, but you provide divine peace. And so the 12 go out with this message, and they aren't well received. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But that persecution that began in five extends to them as well. Now, John chapter 7 and 10 is the fork in the road. It's really a three-pronged fork. But it's in John chapter 7 through John chapter 10. It's about 200 verses. It's one scene. If you're making a movie of John chapter 7 through 10, you don't have to change scenes. It's the same scene. Could be the longest chapter in the New Testament. Could be 200 verses long, and it would have been fine. But in this chapter, these this final chapter, right, Jesus goes to his death, or he's heading towards his death. And it's all about the polarization, the fork in the road, as he goes into the temple on the week before um, his death. So chapter 10, he specifically says, I am the good shepherd and I find my true sheep. And he discovers, the people discover, he doesn't, the people discover that he hasn't gone to a specific nation He's gone to rescue all the nations of the world, and the Jews hate him for that. Let's read this out loud. Would you stand with me? And let's read it out loud. I'm going to read most of it, not all of it. But read it out loud with me. It's a great public reading text. Here we go. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the good door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold and I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Why don't you have a seat? We'll read the next verses here in a second. Buried in this passage are four facts that prove that Jesus was more than a mere man. And the first is this truth, that Jesus claimed to be God. So much so that that final verse we looked at, they thought he was insane. They thought he was crazy, which is what you do in this culture. If someone stands up in the middle of this room right now and says, I'm God, all right, we, we find the local physician, they put an arm around you and we go have a talk, all right? We have a behavioral hospital for that. And they are rightly saying, they, they are rightly understanding that he is claiming to be God. The most controversial part about Jesus was his exclusive claim to be the Messiah, to be God in the flesh. You can see it here in verse 9, verse 11, verse 28, verse 30. He repeatedly says he is one with the Father. And he is the exclusive giver of salvation and eternal life. No one else has salvation and eternal life. And his enemies got the picture. They picked up stones to stone him at this point. And when Jesus asked why they were doing it, look, look at this. Go to the next part. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was in the winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him, and they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I told you. I've said it. Nothing new. I've been telling you. And you do not believe. That's your problem. Not that I'm not being clear. You don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name. And what does he say? I do supernatural things that only God can do. These are the things that testify of me. But you do not believe, he said it again, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. They are secure. I and the Father then are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's appropriate. Next verse. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I like this. He picks up rocks and he says, they pick up rocks and they're about to stone him, which is what you did for somebody who claimed to be God. And he says, now what are you going to stone me for? Because I've been doing nothing but positive things. And the Jews answered him. And they, they're, they're correct here. For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Now, I say they're correct because they're not stoning him for the good things. They're stoning him for what he said. So his enemies knew what he claimed. He claimed to be God. And what is their problem? Their problem is they don't believe him. 
So there's the truth before you. Is it a truth or is it a lie that Jesus is God? Jesus said he was God. And this isn't the only time that he said he was God. He claimed to live before Abraham. John 8, he claimed to exist with the Father in eternity past. John 17, Jesus claimed to be the first and the last. That's a title for God, a name for God in Revelation 1. Jesus claimed to be the judge of all people in Matthew 25. Jesus claimed to forgive sin. So all the while, he's saying these things throughout the course of his life, the leaders of Israel are plotting to kill Jesus because he claimed to be God. Now what probably is most shocking in his claims was what came at his trial. When the high priest stood before Jesus and said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Listen to his reply, Mark 14, I am. He calls upon the name of God. He says in Greek, ego ami, which to them was him saying with no uncertain term, I am the great I am. The name that Moses was given about who God was when he was leading the people out of Egypt. That name that was called upon by God himself to Moses and then Moses gave as the, as the name of the Holy One, Jesus says, I am, and you will see, quoting Daniel here, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And with that, they charge Jesus with blasphemy and they send him to the cross. Now, now let, me, let me be very, very clear here. Jesus never claimed to be merely a good moral teacher, a good moral example, a spiritual guru. Jesus made the audacious claim to be God in the flesh. And that's what got him killed. So you might say, well, there's been many people, many men who made audacious claims about themselves, about being God in the past. It doesn't make it true. And you're right. Just saying you're God, that doesn't make it true. But there's more to it. Number two, we see embedded in this passage in John 10, this truth. Jesus fulfilled ancient prophecy. He didn't just claim to be God. He stepped into the shadow of some prophecies that are over a thousand years old. Go back to verse 11. Now something in chapter 10, verse 11 and on, you see something repeated over and over again. And it's the phrase, he lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 11, verse 15, I lay down my life for my sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life and I take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. That is Old Testament prophecy. There's a good story that goes with it, one that's moved me in the past. And it's the story of, in 1966, of Barry Leventhal. Now, Barry was on top of the world in 1966. He was playing for the UCLA football team and they had just won the Rose Bowl. Within weeks of that high point, on top of the world, he had it all, popularity, fame, and success. Soon after the Rose Bowl, within weeks, one of his closest friends became a follower of Jesus Christ. And his friend introduced him to Hal. Hal was the campus director of Campus Crusade for Christ on the UCLA campus. Hal talked to Barry about the claims of Jesus, that he claimed to be the Messiah. He showed Barry, and this is what really convinced Barry in the long run, he showed Barry prophecy after prophecy of Jesus coming as the Messiah and being God. In one of those discussions early on, Barry got very angry. And he accused how He said, you rewrote the Bible to make it look like Jesus did all these things. This is a new text. There's no way. And Hal was smart, led by the Spirit. He said, Barry, you're, you're a Jewish man, right? Yeah. 
He said, at your bar mitzvah, you were given a Bible, an Old Testament text. Why don't you go to Isaiah 53 when you get back to your apartment and just spend some time reading that. And so Barry began to read. He opened up his copy of scripture in his apartment and he read these words. Listen to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. We all are like sheep. We've gone astray, each to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. It seems so clear to Barry that those verses were speaking about Jesus. He said, man, surely these verses have been tempered with to make it look like Jesus had been fulfilled. They tampered with it and, and made it out to be this. But in 1947, a young Arab boy was playing around a cave near the Dead Sea and stumbled upon a cave we now know as one of the caves of the Qumran, the Essenes that lived, the, the hermits that lived out in that area. And they found what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Found in 1947, they found a whole copy, one complete copy of the book of Isaiah. It dated back way before the life of Jesus, before Jesus ever came on the planet. While the original copy is kept secure in Israel, there's a copy of it on display at the shrine of the book in Jerusalem, a museum in Jerusalem. And do you know what they discovered? That the copy of that scroll of Isaiah found hundreds of years before Jesus, is the exact words that we have now in the Hebrew text. They discovered that 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote these kinds of things in Isaiah 53 and other texts. That the Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit. He would be driven by justice. He would have an international ministry as a teacher, as a gifted teacher, he would experience discouragement, rejection. He would come from humble beginnings. He would experience suffering and he would die a substitutionary death by his own choice and he would later resurrect himself, all from the prophet Isaiah. Now that sounds a lot like Jesus that we know. But that is not the only prophecy that points to Jesus. Others prophecies in the Old Testament about his Jewish lineage, his, he was of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, of the house of David, Jeremiah 23, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, he would come out of Egypt, Hosea 11, he would live in Nazareth, Isaiah 11, minister in Galilee, Isaiah 9, he would speak in parables, Psalm 78, be praised, Psalm 8, he would be called king, Psalm 2, he would be betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. His hands and his side would be pierced, Psalm 22. No bone would be broken, Psalm 22. He would be forsaken of God, Psalm 22. All throughout the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled ancient prophecy written hundreds of years before his birth. But the big point of this text in John 10 is that the ultimate proof that he was God is his resurrection. That's number three. If you're writing notes, Jesus rose from the dead. Only God could do that. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalms, King David wrote in the leading of the Holy Spirit, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
prophesied many centuries before. Even in the scrolls of Isaiah, it predicts that the Messiah, the Holy One, would be brought back to life. But here in John 10, Jesus said it would happen himself. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I may take it up. No one takes it up for me. I lay it down on my own accord and I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. So I don't have time to go over all the details of the resurrection, but let me tell you, the facts are irrevocable. Jesus really did die on the cross. His body really was placed under guard in a tomb. There were three days he stayed there. On the third day, he came out of the grave, appeared to his 12, appeared to 500 others, and stayed around for 40 days. These facts are written down in some of the most ancient creeds, some written within just a few decades of Jesus' resurrection. And the early Christians who just the day before he, the night of his crucifixion, were hiding and scared in an upper room after he appears to them and he resurrects and ascends, these are the men and women who laid down their lives a martyr's death in many a Roman cross, many a Roman Colosseum. These are the men who one night were completely scared and then the next years are bold enough to be crucified upside down, be beheaded for the sake of Christ, sing hymns as they burn on pyres, on funeral pyres. How do you explain that? Their commitment leads to the last point, and it's this, that Jesus changed history. He changed my history. He changed so many of your histories. This is the ultimate apologetic of the, of the divinity of Jesus Christ, is that he rose from the dead and he changes lives. The world has forever been changed by Jesus. Millions of lives have been changed by the message of Jesus. Dr. Peter Kreft, professor of philosophy at Boston College, wrote, why did thousands suffer torture and death for his lie if they knew it was a lie? What force sent Christians to the lion's den with hymns on their lips? What lie ever transformed the world like that? It was this message that ultimately convinced Barry. The resurrection, yes. The claims of Christ fulfilling in prophecy, yes. But it was the fact that his friend's life, his closest friend's life, had been radically changed by Jesus. That Jesus had to have risen from the dead. He had to be real because he had touched his friend's life. Once he saw the claims of Christ that he, he claimed to be the Messiah, once he had investigated the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, once he had saw the evidence of the resurrection and then he had seen the change in his friend's life, Barry's life was changed. In April of that year, just a few months after the Rose Bowl, Barry realized that the fading glory of the Rose Bowl was a given. Life was fading. There had to be more than life to life than that. And he remembered the words from John 10. These words in John 10 were the final straw. He remembered these words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. In light of what was being snatched out of his hands, this promise that Jesus would never leave him, never forsake him, that afternoon, Barry was brought to his knees and next to his bed, he prayed these words, his words. 
This is what he wrote down. He prayed, Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again. I believe that you are now my Savior, my Lord. And in that moment, Barry's own life was changed forever. 2,000 years ago, a Roman leader by the name of Pilate asked people, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And I ask you that same question. What do you do with Jesus? You must come to grips with this question. And really, I told you, it's a three-pronged fork. We could call it a trilemma. You know what a dilemma is? It's two forks. It's either this or this. This is a trilemma. For somebody to say, I'm God, I'm God. Hey, by the way, I'm God. And do a bunch of miracles and say all these things about him being the chosen one and being God. He is either an absolute liar or he is an absolute lunatic or he really is who he said he is. He's Lord. That's the trilemma that's before you. C.S. Lewis, I'll throw part of his quote up on the screen. Don't throw it up there yet. But listen to his words in mere Christianity. These have moved me for many years. Listen to this. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus would say is not a great moral teacher. If my kids come home and they are one of their good teachers is saying the things that Jesus says, I am the next morning going to the school board, going to the superintendent, going to the principal. You do not say what Jesus said and be a mere moral great teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says, hi, I'm a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. And on the board, you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him for a demon. And, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being some great human teacher. He has not left that, open, that option open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is God. He came for that one reason, as God, to do something only God could do, and that is to set us free from the momentous, monumental rubble of sin and death that had been stacked up for millennium against the human soul. Would you be willing this morning to hear the words of Jesus? The ultimate prayer that we prayed for you this week, if you're here invited from somebody as a guest, is that these four facts would be clearly understood in your mind. Jesus claimed to be God. There were ancient prophecies he fulfilled. He, he, he resurrected himself. And he changed his lives. But for me, it wasn't until Jesus came into my life and encountered me. 
until I had a personal encounter with Jesus that all those proofs weighed in together to the place of my salvation. And so I want to pray for you here today that maybe already today, maybe later today, you would have an encounter with the risen Christ. That is the most powerful and important prayer we could pray for you today. Especially if you're going through something hard. Especially if you're going through a place of suffering. Because your ears are open. You, it can't be all this. It can't be all about, it has to be more. And I'm telling you, it is more. And it is about a personal relationship with the risen Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are God. You are the, the God in heaven and you've come to earth and you've made this place, this place right here today, holy. Because your spirit is with us. And the prayer that you want me to pray above all else is a prayer of invitation to ask those here in this room to come into an encounter with you. Lord, for those who have never met you, Lord Jesus, invade their life. Encounter them, engage them, win them, woo them, make them yours. Lord Jesus, may you convert their hearts right now. Rebirth them from the rubble of their relationships, the, the struggle of their suffering. Resurrect them. You have the power of life and resurrection. Give them hope and give them resurrection. Give them peace, not perks, peace. Peace with you. Lord Jesus, there's others in here who have known you, but it's been a while since they felt intimate with you. And Lord Jesus, we call it a lie that we've had the last life-changing encounter with you, Lord Jesus, that we can have. That is a lie. We can encounter you here today, afresh, anew. So Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. Give us more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.